We are continuing on in our series in the Gospel of John this morning, so if you've got a Bible or a device or something with a Bible on it, uh, open it up to John chapter 1, and verse 19 is where we're going to pick it up. Um, But if you've been tracking with us, we've gone now through the first 18 verses of John, so the prologue, and so far, what John has done is he's established for us who Jesus is, so he's told us uh, with many different ways, many different symbols that he's going to keep picking up on throughout the whole gospel. He's told us who he's going to talk about, who this Jesus is that he's going to talk about for the next 20 chapters. And so he's made clear for us, uh, before we jump into the story part of the gospel, John's going, this Jesus, this Jesus is the eternal word, the eternal son of God, who is God, who is with God, who came down to us, who took on flesh, took on humanity and came to us in his love to like we just sang about, to come into our world, into our sin, into our mess as the light of men, the light of the world, to put us on his shoulders and bring us back to God. This is the Jesus that we're going to read about. And what John does after he's established all these things for us in the prologue, uh, starting in verse 19 this week, we're going to jump into the narrative part of John's gospel. So he's going to start telling stories now. He's going to jump into the story part of Jesus's life. So we're going to hear from Jesus, see miracles, see all these things that Jesus is going to do. And what John is going to do is he's going to start with a story uh, from the life of John the Baptist. And actually, all of the gospel writers do this. They give a little, uh, little bit about John the Baptist before we get into the life of Jesus. And the reason for that is because John the Baptist is one of the greatest examples that we have in all of Scripture of a life of true discipleship. So what John is going to go on to do in the rest of the gospel, the story after this one we're looking at today, we're going to see that Jesus is going to go and start to call people to himself. He's going to start calling disciples. He's going to say, follow me, follow me, follow me. And what John, the writer, wants to do with this first story is establish right off the bat for us what it actually is that Jesus is calling us to. And what Jesus is calling us to is a life of discipleship. That's why throughout the entire New Testament, followers of Jesus are called Christians a grand total of three times. And in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called disciples over 270 times. So it's very clear that that's what we are meant to be as followers of Jesus, disciples. And that word means apprentice. It means learner, mathetes. It means somebody who apprentices to the master, who not only listens to what they say, but watches them, follows them closely, learns what they do, how they speak, how they go about life with the intention of imitating that person, that master, so that they can become like them. It's like when I, I was 17 and I became a personal trainer and I got my first job in a gym, World Health Club, Edmonton, Alberta, represent. And what happened is I had to write an exam and it was like a hundred questions, all multiple choice. They were pretty easy, but I got a hundred percent on my personal training exam. And so I'm showing up to the gym ready to go day one. I'm like, give me some clients. I'm ready to train people. But I wasn't yet a disciple. I knew some stuff but I didn't know how to train people. So my manager, Ricky, he said, no, you're not even going to come close to clients. You're not training anybody. For the first couple months, you're going to disciple to the master trainer, Johnny Sinclair. And he goes, you're a Christian. You'll understand this. Johnny, he's Jesus to you now. And I'm like, no, he's not. But I know what you mean. And so I just start shadowing Johnny Sinclair, the master trainer, and I'm watching how he speaks to clients. I'm watching how he does exercise programming. I'm watching how he interacts with his clients, how he writes things out, how he gets the weights for people, how he puts them away, every little detail for months until I finally start training my first client. 
And the first thing that that client said to me was, you're like Johnny Jr., right? I was Johnny Jr. because I had spent time apprenticing to the master. And Jesus is saying that is what we are called to as followers of Jesus. We are not called to be supportive spectators, watching and hearing the life of Jesus, standing on the sidelines going, yay, Jesus, I like Jesus. We are supposed to be in the game, disciples, apprentices, following him, watching him, listening to his words, and not just developing a bunch of head knowledge, but putting that knowledge to work so that we actually become like him. We start to look more and more and more like Jesus. We live like Jesus, speak like Jesus, love the world, love our neighbors like Jesus. We are called to a life of discipleship, not spectatorship. And we're going to look at John the Baptist. John gives us this awesome story of John the Baptist because John is, like I said, one of the greatest examples of that discipleship that we have. That's why in Matthew 11, Jesus actually calls John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived, the greatest one who was born of woman. So besides Jesus himself, he calls John the Baptist the greatest. All this discussion about who's the goat, you know, MJ or LeBron, wrong. John the Baptist is the goat. That's what we're supposed to pick up on. And so from this passage, we're going to jump in and read it. I just want us to notice three things about the life of a disciple. And then we're going to notice two things, very important things about who Jesus is. Because that's what we need to figure this out. If we're going to go out and live in this world, if we are called to be apprentices, disciples to Jesus, we need to know how we ought to think and speak of ourselves and how we ought to think and speak of Jesus, the master So let's jump into it. Chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. It's the word of the Lord. The first thing I want to notice about the life of discipleship is that disciples 
True disciples are gripped by the gospel. And what I mean by that is that true disciples to Jesus do not let the distractions and the cares of the world cloud out the one thing that we are told is most important, which is the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's very interesting that the first story that John tells us, if you noticed, this encounter between the Baptists and the Pharisees, the the priests and the Levites, the first story that we get is a clash between the message of Jesus and the religious authorities of the time. It's very interesting. And so this phrase, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, this is going to come up over 70 times throughout the rest of the gospel, and it's always the religious elites who we see in opposition to Jesus. We're going to see this over and over again, this clash, this contradiction between the message of grace and truth brought through Jesus And the religious authorities who have made their entire lives all about the externals, all about keeping to the law, all about doctrine and theology that has lost the heart. Right? John is going to say, and Jesus is going to say in in chapter 5, there's this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees where uh, Jesus says, you've searched the scriptures and you know the scriptures, but you've missed the one that the scriptures are about. It's about me. It's about grace and truth. John is saying, Jesus is saying that we can have all the theology, all the doctrine, all the head knowledge about the scriptures in the world. But if that head knowledge and that doctrine and that theology does not lead to loving God, worshiping God and loving neighbor, then something is broken about it. Right? We've missed the point. And so what is, what is this, this conflict, this dust up between the religious uh, elites, the uh, priests and the Levites, and John the Baptist? What's the problem? Well, the thing is, uh, there had been in, in Israel, in their history, a long, rich history of prophets, right? We get Moses, we get Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we get Isaiah, all the way through Malachi, the last prophet uh, in the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament. And after Malachi, there are 400 years of silence, So it's kind of like, oh, well, has the prophetic office ended? Is there no more word from God? We haven't heard from God in in 400 years. And then, boom, out of nowhere, John the Baptist shows up on the scene. He comes out of the wilderness, which is where God always met his prophets and gave them a word. So it's like this prophetic figure, John the Baptist, boom, shows up on the scene after 400 years of silence, and he starts making waves. He gathers a following of disciples, of followers, really quickly, and he's just making this big movement, this fresh, beautiful move of God. And so the priests and the Levites, the religious, uh, the religious people, the religious leaders, are sent from a group of Pharisees to go and check it out. So like, what's going on? What's the deal with this John the Baptist guy? And it was more than just that. It was more than curiosity. They're going to ask him, who are you and why are you baptizing? And the reason for that is because the priests and the Levites were the ones who were responsible for doing the ritual purification things. And so they had their way of doing religion. They had their way of doing purification. Baptism was not for Jews. It was only for Gentiles because the Jews were the people of God. So they were already pure if they did all the the purification rites. So only Gentiles needed to be baptized because they were the pagans, they were the Greeks outside of the people of God. So if they wanted to become Jews, become the people of God, they would have to be baptized. But it would have to be done in the fancy, buttoned up, cleaned up way that the Jews wanted it done. So they would have to use cleaned, purified tubs positioned in the right place using only purified, uh, ritual purified water, jump through all the religious hoops. And then the contrast is John the Baptist who comes out of nowhere, comes out of the wilderness, and he's an absolute, I love this guy, he's a wildcat. 
Like he's in for real a nut job. Like he's crazy. He took a Nazarite vow we learned from the scripture. So that means a razor would never touch him. So he had dreadlocks that were like down past his knees. He would have had a big old beard. Uh, he would have eaten uh, wild honey and locusts out in the wilderness. And he just comes out of nowhere. And he's like, he's not using tubs to baptize people. He's out in the Jordan River in the muck and the mud of the river, just baptizing everybody. He's shouting, preaching repentance of everyone, not just the Jews. He's going, Jews and Gentiles, everybody, you need to repent. Turn your heart to God. Everybody needs to be baptized. We're all on the same level here. And so the religious elites, the priests and the Levites, don't like that because it doesn't fit their mold. It doesn't fit their paradigm. It doesn't fit their methodology of how they like to do religion, how they like to do the externals. I love this. This is like uh, where I did my seminary training in Sydney. I had this, this buddy of mine on campus. His name was Rob. And he was for real, like straight up John the Baptist. He is like big old dreadies down to his ankles massive beard. He would wear these like cut off tie-dye tank tops that he made himself and jean shorts. And he would walk around campus uh, just in bare feet. And he's like the loudest, most Aussie guy you've ever heard in your life. I would be like doing something on one side of campus and I would just hear, oh, Delphi, what's going on, mate? Yeah. And he just starts yelling. You could hear him from across the campus. But he's a, he's a church planter. He's a preacher, amazing, beautiful, godly man, preaching the gospel, planting churches on mission, but he made a lot of people angry because of the way that he looked and the way he went about things and how obnoxiously loud he was. But I just remember we would do on Fridays, we would do this thing where we'd offer free uh, theology classes uh, for people from an old folks home. So people in their 80s would come and they would learn theology and doctrine and it was awesome. But I remember one day I was having tea uh, with this, this woman in her 80s and then I hear Rob across campus. I'm like, oh no. And then she comes over me, to me, this 80-something-year-old this lady and she goes... Oh no. Sorry, I'll stop doing the accent. She goes, Oh no, that homeless man is back on campus. I'm like, That's Rob. He's on staff. He's, he's sharing at chapel today. And she was like, No, nah, I don't think so. I'm like, Yeah, he's a staff member. A beautiful, godly man preaching the gospel, planting churches, but he made a lot of people angry. They were unable to see this beautiful, fresh move of God that was happening through this guy because he didn't fit the mold, right? And the point is, what John is saying is we can get so caught up, we can get so just dogmatic about our views on things, our perspective, the way that things are supposed to look. We can so easily make secondary, non-essential issues the main thing, right? And get so fixated on those things that we cancel and turn our backs on and refuse to partner up and go shoulder to shoulder with people for the sake of the gospel, which is why we're here, right? What, what does this look like? We're in danger of this always in the church, right? This Pharisaic spirit that can creep in. In the church, it can look like uh, making secondary issues. Like, you know, I don't like the way that they do worship. I don't like their music. I don't like their aesthetic. I don't like their stage, their lights. I don't like their, you know, view of eschatology and the end times. Things that are not gospel issues, we can write people off and say, I'm not going to partner with them. I want nothing to do with them. Are they preaching the gospel? Do they love Jesus? Do they love their family? Are they loving the neighborhood? Doesn't matter. They don't fit the club. Right? If we need to get a little more personal with this, I'll just, I'll go there. You can email me. I probably won't read it. Um, what does it look like right now, right? It's not just religious things. Look at the world. Like vaccines, passports, restrictions, 
COVID stuff. Man, be informed about these things. Read about these things. Sure, watch videos. Like, yes, be informed. Talk about it. Sure. But man, the way that I hear some Christians talking about this stuff and arguing about this stuff and the, just the passion and the veracity and the, the way that they speak about it, you would think that their view on vaccines was the gospel. Right? Yeah, be informed on this stuff. We can talk about it. But I'm just saying, if, man, if in the last number of months, if you have spent more time reading articles and watching YouTube videos and studying a vaccine and a passport and this and that, more time studying that stuff than you spent reading the inspired, spirit-filled word of God, something's wrong with that. Right? If you're arguing, pouring out more sweat, blood, and tears, trying to convince somebody else to your view on a vaccine more passionately than you're trying to win somebody to Christ. Something's wrong with that. Right? John's saying, don't get second things first. Man, time is way too short for that. Right? People ask this question about these issues going on. What side of history do you want to want to be on? Do you want to be on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? I'm like, man, I want to be on the side of history where something bad, something hurtful, something painful was going on in the world. And instead of getting wrapped up in my own opinions and views on that thing, I focused and fixed my eyes on the gospel and I shared the love of Jesus Christ with people who need hope. Right? We are in the midst of a world. Philippians 2 tells us, man, you are a church. You are to be lights, a light shining in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation holding out hope. I mean, we can get so fixated on, like these, like these priests and Levites, so fixated on our view, our preference of secondary things that we forget what the most important thing is for which we were called, which we were sent into the world. Sit around and argue and fight and bicker about these things and dwell on these secondary things. Meanwhile, the world outside is full of broken people, hurting people, dying without God, without hope pining for love, pining for the affection of a heavenly father. We're sitting around messing about with other things. Paul says this to the Philippian church in chapter one. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're what? That you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Man, Paul got this. He understood this. In chapter 3, he says this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't get off course. Don't drift and get off mission. The enemy would love that right now. To be able to use secondary things, to be able to use the problems and the division and the disunity that's going on in our culture to get us off mission We can forget that there is one name. Paul says one thing, one thing I hold on to, one thing I strive for, one thing that unifies the church in times of disunity, and that's the faith of the gospel. 
Because there's one name under heaven by which man can be saved. There's one message that has the power to save us and to free us, and that's the message of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't have time, and I don't have energy to waste bickering about other things. Disciples are gripped by the gospel. Second thing I want us to notice is that disciples know clearly who they are not and who they are. What happens when the priests and the Levites ask this question to John? Who are you? He says, verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. So that's the first thing. John knows that he is not the Christ. He's saying, this is not about me. This work, this ministry that I'm doing, it's not actually about me. I'm not the one you're waiting for. I'm not the one that you need, the one that you're searching for. I'm not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And so this was uh, the Jews. They had this expectation. It was prophesied in Malachi. Remember the last prophetic book of the Old Testament? Uh, Chapter 4, I think verse 5 and 6, there's this prophecy about uh, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. And so they had this expectation that the prophet Elijah was going to visit them. He would make all things right and pave the way for the Messiah to come. And John answers, I am not. I'm not Elijah either. And so then they go, are you the prophet? And what they're referring to there is Deuteronomy 18. Uh, God says to Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among the people, and I'm going to put my words in that prophet's mouth, and the people will be commanded to do everything that that prophet says, and I will hold them accountable to how they respond to that prophet. Most scholars believe that's a prophecy, again, about Jesus, about the Messiah. And John answers, no, I'm not the prophet either. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. We've got to tell our bosses something. So what do you say about yourself? So John knows who he is not. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet that's expected in Deuteronomy 18. And I think this is important. We need to just pause here. It's worth taking some time to think about who we are not called to be as disciples of Jesus. Right? Because I know that a really good way to burn out and crash and burn and be exhausted and feel like you're getting nowhere is to try really, really hard to be somebody that God never called you to be, right? To think that you need to fill certain shoes, that you need to try to be everything to everyone at all times and fill this role, whether that's in your work or your life or your family or your ministry that God never actually expected you to do. And the reality is, uh, this is what a professor said to me once where I was kind of banging my head against the wall trying to do certain things and I was just losing it. I was tired, exhausted, feeling like I'm getting nowhere. He said, you think that you're doing something that's God honoring and holy because, you know, it's a ministry thing. But the reality is that every minute you spend trying to do that thing that God never told you to do is actually a minute of disobedience because every minute you spend there is a minute you're not spending somewhere else where he's actually called you. So we need to know who we are not as disciples And then John knows clearly who he is. Verse 22, who are you? What is John's answer? Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist knew clearly who he was. Not only who he was not, he knew just as clearly and was able to say with confidence who he is. I'm just a voice. I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, make way, God is coming towards you. Indeed, Jesus, the one you don't even recognize who is standing among you, he has already come. 
That's the role of my life. That's why God sent me. That's why I'm here. I know it. To be a voice crying out in the wilderness, a pointer to the one. I'm not the word, but I'm pointing to the word. I'm not the one you've expected, the Messiah, the Christ. I'm pointing you to the Messiah, the Christ, the one that you need, the only one with the power to save. And it's worth thinking about what has God gifted and called you to do with your life. Think about your gifts. Think We talked about spiritual gifts a, a number of weeks ago. Think about your personality. Think about what makes your heart tick, what makes your heart soar in passion, what makes your heart break, what do you care about, what makes you weep. We need to take the time to think, to pray, to talk to other people. This is why community groups are awesome, to be around people who get to know you and go, yeah, I think you're gifted at that. I think this is where God's calling you. We need clarity and we need conviction so that when we know why God has sent us, we can run after it full tilt. And we're actually going to do that exercise in our community groups this week. We're going to spend a few minutes just thinking about trying to list together and help each other out, work through that, pray through that. Who are you not called to be in Christ? Who are you called to be as a disciple of Christ? And can I just first, before we start thinking about what we're meant to do, can I just commend to you that before any of that, before we run ahead and think I got to do this, do this, do this, do this, be this for these people, do this, do this, do this. The first calling on your life, regardless of who you are, is to be a child of God, right? We already read that. John already told us that clearly in, in verse 12 of chapter one. He said, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Primarily, first and foremost, before we think about what we need to do, run ahead and do that and jump into it, we need to be firmly rooted and grounded in our identity, who we are in Christ, which is a child of God. If you know Jesus, if you have received who he is, his forgiveness, his grace, if you've repented of sin and welcomed him into your life and your heart to be Lord, you are a child of God. And the amazing thing, the thing that just keeps blowing my mind about being a child of God is that God's love and his acceptance of me is not that of a deadbeat, derelict father who will kick me out of the family if I don't perform well enough. The love of a father is gracious. It is slow to anger. It is accepting. It is abounding in steadfast love. Think about the story of the prodigal son, right? This is the perfect example of the son who, who spits in his father's face. He says, give me the inheritance money. And he runs away and he squanders it on parties and prostitutes. And he ends up just at rock bottom in the mud, eating with the pigs. Absolute lowest of the low. And then he goes back to his father Right? And what is the father doing? He's not wagging a finger. He's not beating him over the head with a Bible. He's not sending him off again. The father's waiting for him with open arms. Right? And he doesn't push him away. He embraces the wayward son. He kisses him. He wraps his finest robe around him. The robe of his goodness and love and righteousness. That's what God the father does for us. He puts the ring on his finger. He gives him the finest. He says, you know, we're going to throw a party for you. We're going to celebrate because you're home. That's that's who we are, first and foremost, in God. He's not kicking you out of the family when you stumble, when you fall back into that sin that you thought you defeated. He's welcoming you home. First, we are a child. Then we're a disciple. Then we can get into the specifics of what we actually do. Third thing I want us to realize is that disciples realize that their lives are not about them. What did John say? I'm just the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. 
verse 3. I'm the, I'm the voice. I'm just a voice. I'm just a pointer. I'm not the one. I'm pointing to the one. That's what my life is about. I'm not the point of my own life. I'm not the center of my own story. Jesus is. Oh, that that would be true for all of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus, that it's about him, that we spend our lives and our energy and our mental capacity pointing to him, not to us. I don't have the power to save anybody, no matter how God has gifted me, no matter how he's called me, no matter how he sent me. I got nothing. I'm nothing without him. And John's message is make straight the way of the Lord. Originally, he says he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 and verse 3. In that context, the message was to the, the exiled Israelites who they were, they were leaving exile. They were coming back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land. And the message is make straight the path because God is receiving you. Like the, like the father in the prodigal son story, God is receiving you back. He's running towards you. So make straight the way of the Lord. Smooth out the hills, smooth out the crevices, the ditches, everything that's in the way between you and the father. Smooth it out because God is here. Jesus indeed is here and he's the God who moves toward us. Over and over, John's gonna tell us that. Verse 29, you notice that John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him. That's consistent imagery throughout the gospel that he's the God who pursues us. He's the God who moves towards us, who comes into our mess, into our existence, into our sin. And scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says this, the essential message of this original minister and of all witnesses ever since is to call ourselves and all within hearing to give the Lord a straight shot at us. To be real, clear, honest, upfront with the Lord God, I think that this making straight occurs most naturally in the regular confession of our sins and in a continuing turning from them and a day by day wanting to trust the Lord. John the Baptist's message was very simple. We read it in Mark, Mark's gospel. He says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John, this wild man, is baptizing not in the clean, neat, religious way that he was supposed to. He's out in the muddy Jordan River and he's shouting, repent, turn your heart to God. I don't care if you're a Gentile. I don't care if you're a Jew. It's no worry. You can't rely on your your, uh, inheritance as a child of Abraham. That means nothing anymore. You need to turn your heart to God. Turn your heart to Christ. Be baptized. Shift your allegiance from yourself. Knock yourself off the throne of your own life. Do away with these wannabe little fake gods, these idols that you set up in your life. Trust the king of the universe. And I think we can try so, so hard sometimes to build a life that means something, right? A life that's going to be enjoyable, a life uh, that, that has meaning, that has purpose, but we can do it in a way that we're trying to get things for ourselves. We're trying to save things up, whether it's money or possessions or status or reputation, whatever it might be. We can make it about us. And the sad irony is that Jesus already told us how to build a life of eternal meaning and significance. Matthew 16, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever would save his own life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Disciples realize that their lives are not about them. We have such a short time in this world. If we want it to count eternally, we need to realize that it's not about us. That's why John says in verse 27, 
Even uh, he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. We miss the meaning of this. To untie and take off the shoes and wash the feet of the master was not even the job of a disciple. It was considered too low. It was the job of a slave. So a disciple would do everything for their rabbi, for their master, except that. So John is saying, this one who stands among you, Jesus, who you don't even recognize, it's not about me, it's about him, and you're kicking up a fuss about how I'm doing things, and you don't even understand that this one standing among you who you've ignored, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. A couple weeks ago, um, something happened. There's um, one of my favorite professors that I had at, at Regent College when I was doing, doing my theological study here in Vancouver. Um, his name was Don Lewis, and he had been at Regent for 40 years, uh, faithfully teaching. He was a church historian, and, uh, and he passed away two, two Tuesdays ago, but he had become a, a mentor to me during, during COVID times, during my semester there at Regent. Um, and it was funny, I was, I was flipping through my notes from, from his teachings the other day, just thinking about him, reading his memorial, and this is the last thing that I ever wrote down from the last lecture I had with him. He was talking to, to pastors in our pastoral theology class, and he said, the great irony of those who would like to impact and guide souls is that the only ones truly worthy of such a task are the ones who know that they are unworthy. The only ones worthy to guide and impact souls are the ones who realize they're not worthy. It's not about me. It's not about you. You've got five minutes in this life. It's about him. Why? Two things about Jesus. Jesus is the slain and victorious lamb. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We hear this lamb of God and we think, oh, lamb, it's cute. There's paintings, there's church history, all these things of like Jesus holding a little like cute little lamb and John with this little lamb and stuff. So we think soft, cuddly, woolly, little Jesus is my friend. I can snuggle with him. He's my cuddle buddy. That's not the picture. John is drawing on two things, two images that would have been clear for these people. The first is that Jesus is the slain lamb. And so we have all these instances of sacrifices of the spotless lamb without blemish throughout uh, the Jewish history. And John's speaking into this. He says, Genesis 22, you remember Abraham when he was supposed to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on the altar. And he's about to plunge a knife through his heart. And God says, wait, stop. And instead, God provides the ram the lamb with horns caught in the thicket. John saying, that's the lamb, that's Jesus. We've got the Passover, right? Exodus 12, the Israelites are called to sacrifice the lamb and put the blood over their doorpost so that when the angel of death passes through the city, right, they'll be spared. They'll be spared from death and destruction. John is saying, you know that Passover lamb, his blood That's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers you so that you can escape destruction because God has provided a sacrificial lamb. Exodus 29, every morning and every night, the lamb was sacrificed for the people, for their sins. John's saying, that is this Jesus that you now see. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. The lamb is Christ perfect, sinless, came into our world, took on our sin, took on our evil. For our sins, he was pierced. For our evil, he was hung on that cross, crucified. John is saying he is the one who takes away the sin of the world. You know, these sacrificial lambs, these substitutes that God has provided, that is to show how deep your sin problem is, how evil it is, how broken we actually are. There had to be a sacrifice, but God so loved the world that he wouldn't let us take that death on ourselves. We don't have to receive it. We don't ever have to feel the sting of death. We don't ever have to carry the guilt and the shame that comes from our sin, from our rebelling against God, because this Jesus took it to take away the sin of the world, to remove it, to take it off of our shoulders, off of our conscience, off of our heavy heart. The psalm says, as far as the east is from the west, that is how far God has removed our sin from us. Amen? Are we stoked about that? Man, that's why John says, behold, look, he's jacked up, right? He's fired up. There's no stone-faced, sad, looking like Jesus is still dead. Right? Because he's the slain lamb, but he's also the victorious lamb. That's the other picture. Judas Maccabeus, he was a bloody, conquering warrior king. And he's called the victorious, conquering lamb. David, Solomon, Samuel, called the victorious lamb. John, the writer uh, of our gospel, who also wrote Revelation, he picks up on this idea 29 times in Revelation. He calls Jesus the victorious lamb. Why? Because he didn't stay dead. Yes, our sins were laid on his shoulders, crucified with Christ on the cross. But sometimes we stop at Good Friday and forget about Easter Sunday, right? He rose. He didn't stay dead. If he didn't rise, it would be in vain, Paul says in Corinthians. Our hope, our faith would be in vain if he stayed dead. God raised him from the dead victorious. And now this victorious lamb is seated on the throne in heaven. He's thrown down the enemy. He's conquered sin and death. And he says, all those who are in Christ are victorious, are more than conquerors with him. The battle is won because he's the slain and the victorious lamb. The lamb is Christ. Man, that's got to do something in you. That's what John is saying. John the Baptist, man, behold, look. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Man, how can we sing these songs about Jesus carried me on his shoulders? He brought me back to the fold. He forgave me. We sing these songs every week. Man, is there any joy, any passion in your life? What does that do knowing that Christ has taken your sin? We still live like we're, Christ is dead and we're dead with him. We look like zombies, man. He's victorious. Our sin is gone. John says you're to be jacked up about that. Behold, if there's no joy, there's no passion in your life, man, behold, look to the cross. Look to the risen lamb. Last thing that we need to see about Jesus is that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We'll end on this. I'll be quick, I promise. John bore witness. He saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus 
So this was prophesied about the Son of God, the Son of Man, that uh, the Holy Spirit would rest, would remain, abide on him in the form of a dove. And so John sees this, and so he knows that this Jesus, as we see in verse 34, he knows that this Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the one, John says, I baptize with water. This Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It's not of any works of righteousness that you could possibly do. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, not of works, but everyone who receives Jesus, everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, will be saved, redeemed, renewed, regenerated. He'll take your cold, dead heart and he will breathe life back into it. He'll resuscitate it and make you new, a new creation, alive again. John baptizes with water. It's this beautiful symbol, death of my sins with Christ on the cross, but resurrection, victorious lamb, raised to new life. Some of us need to take that step of public profession. Something powerful happens. We're not saved by baptism. Only faith in Christ saves us. But something powerful happens when we're baptized. We take that public stand and say, I used to be this person, but that person is dead. I'm raised to new life with Christ. Some of us haven't taken that step yet. We need to take that step. But Jesus is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can think Holy Spirit baptism and we think like weird, wacky, charismatic stuff, you know, crazy stuff going on and that sometimes gets taken out of context to mean that. But what it really means is that every single Christian, every believer who's received Christ, receives his Holy Spirit. He pours his spirit, his power into us, into our heart, into our life, and it's his power at work in us. Paul says to the Galatians, are you so foolish as to have begun by the Holy Spirit, but to now think that you're perfected in the flesh? Walk in step with the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. It's not this added experience that we have on top of our salvation where we're baptized with the Spirit and crazy things start happening. It is to be the experience of every single Christian that we walk filled and empowered and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. That word, that verb that Paul, or sorry, that uh, John uses for Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit, it's continual, ongoing, present tense. You could phrase it as Jesus is the one who goes on baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Continual day-to-day experience of walking with God in his presence, his power through the Holy Spirit. Is that your daily experience? What happens when we're filled with the Spirit? You do a quick survey through all the New Testament when people are, Christians are filled with the Spirit. What happens? They receive boldness. They receive courage to proclaim the gospel, to share their faith. They receive power from Jesus to defeat sin in their lives, to fight and war against temptation in their lives. They receive love and unity to build up the saints. They receive all these beautiful things. They sing songs. They pray when we're filled with With the Spirit, God moves, he abides in us, and he moves in and through us. Is that your experience of being immersed, baptized day by day in the Spirit of God? If there's no joy, if there's no power in your life to war against sin, if there's no love, there's no fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things, are they developing in you? Are they working themselves out in your day-to-day life? If not, you need to cry out and ask for God to work in his spirit through you, and he will. He will give without measure. 
He's not stingy. He gives without measure or limit. That's to be our experience as believers. And so Lee's going to come and, and lead us in a time of communion at the Lord's Supper. But I would just ask you during this time, as we sing, as we take the Lord's Supper, do what Paul tells us to do. Examine yourself. Think about it, how you're walking right now. Respond to this. John, over and over, he calls for a response to the message of Jesus. What does that need to be for you? Have you made secondary things primary things? Do you need to repent of that? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Is God calling you to get baptized? Is God calling you to put your faith and your trust in this Jesus for the first time if you haven't? I would just urge you, take some time, reflect as we do this. Actually go through the process, engage in it, and respond as the Holy Spirit leads you. Lord, thank you for your word. Would you speak to us now? Would you dwell among us now? Move in and among this room, Lord. Move in and through us now. Call us to greater faith. Call us to greater repentance, greater filling of your Holy Spirit, Lord, for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.